Good morning. This is a reading from Genesis 32, 22 through 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. Could be sleep deprivation as well, but so anybody in here know somebody that literally just has relational trouble with everybody they know? Anybody? No hands raised, please. No pointing, no nudging. So it's funny because, you know, a lot of times preachers do this thing. They just love this where you're like, does anybody know? And if you're, if you don't know anybody, you're probably that person. This is kind of like the reverse. If you don't know anybody, that has relational strife, please come forward at the end, and we'd like to meet you, because you probably have great discernment, you probably have amazing boundaries as a person. Most of us probably do know a person who's like this, and uh, most of us have experienced this in our life, because relational strife, as we've seen in, in the book of Genesis, started with the very first couple. Didn't even make it multiple generations without strife between people, because sin, even though sin is primarily before God, Sin is present in every human relationship. And if you put two sinful people next to each other, people are going to take some elbows. That's just the way that life works. And you don't get very far into the Bible without finding yourself in these texts, people that just have relational trouble everywhere they look. And we all know people like this, like Taylor Swift, for example, would be somebody. And I just felt compelled with the Eras Tour being such a huge deal. I read an article this week that the Eras Tour is like changing the U.S. economy right now. It's just unbelievable. And so because of that, I felt obligated to say that I have been a Swifty for a long time. In fact, since before, it was even called Swifties. Uh, 2008 was a great Taylor Swift year. In fact, I liked her better when she was still country music, even though I don't like country music. I did like Taylor Swift's country music. Part of it was ulterior motives, being a high school student and college student, all my group of guy friends thought she was God's gift to the world. I mean, just unbelievable. She's our age. She was writing these songs in high school. It was unreal. So much so that two of my friends and I in college went to Kansas City, and we were screaming our lungs out at a Taylor Swift concert with all these junior high girls and their moms around us. It was... We didn't post any pictures from that. 
But I'll tell you what, it's interesting if you start to listen through to her music, you're like, you know, because you're an 18-year-old or 19-year-old, you're like, oh man, Taylor Swift is so amazing, she'd be wonderful to date until you listen to her music. And then you're like, Drew, Stephen, John Mayer, I mean, it does not end well for the people that date this girl. And I heard a song from her last year called Anti-Hero, because I, I'd stopped listening after Speak Now and Fearless. But I heard a song on the radio last year called Anti-Hero, and in an interview at one point I had listened to, she said, that somebody asked her, like, what's your secret to writing all these great songs? And she said, go to junior high, write it all down. I thought, that's kind of cool, except you're supposed to leave junior high at some point, and things are supposed to change in your life, and I could tell that they had because the chorus in Anti-Hero says, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Like, that is the truest line I have ever heard in a song. It's self-reflective. It notices that the common denominator for all these years has finally been identified. It's me. I'm the problem. And in fact, this is just so interesting because the first line in this song says, I have this thing where I get older but never wiser. <laughs> this is so good. This is so good and so introspective. And chances are you probably find yourself somewhere in that song. Because at some point in maturity, we all realize that the string of struggles and trials and broken relationships in our lives actually always have a common denominator. Us. Right? Us. And I want to propose to you this morning, especially for my young Swifties in the audience this morning, Jacob is the Taylor Swift of the Old Testament. Because if you look, if you look at his life, and I just read the whole Jacob story this week, there's not one healthy relationship in his life until chapter 33. And what I want to talk about this morning is what changes in chapter 33. How do you go from being a guy who, not all his fault, hasn't had a single successful healthy relationship with someone until he's an adult? And all of a sudden, God does something in him that changes his life and his relationships forever. So speaking of relational strife, let's just recap a little bit of the Jacob story. What people usually think about with Jacob is his relationship with Esau, which is his twin brother. And the story begins actually when uh, his parents, who are Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca is noticing that something is going on with these babies. And she says, they're, it's like they're fighting in the womb against each other. And the Lord, she goes and prays, and the Lord says, yes, you have two nations in your womb. And they are battling against each other. And she has these babies, and sure enough, they, they live up to this. They, they have these two boys, and in Genesis chapter 25, it says the first boy comes out, and they, they had a little different philosophy of naming kids then. This didn't even occur to Laura and I a few weeks ago, but he comes out, he's all red, and his body is hairy like a cloak. So they called his name Esau. In English, it's like they saw him and they said, he's red, he's hairy, let's name him Harry Red Isaacson. That's, that's his name. And the second one comes out, and they say that was kind of odd that he was grasping at the heel of his brother, so, so let's name him Cheater Isaacson. So you've got Red and Cheater that grow up in this family together, and they both live up to their names. In, 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 in a certain way, this is kind of 
a, a creative way that God has orchestrated history to show that there are forces beyond your control sometimes that lead to relational strife, right? He, he lived up to his family of origin problems. That's what Jacob did throughout his whole life. And we live in a day where it's really common to blame all of our problems on inherited characteristics. We are victims of what other people have done. My life was set up in a way that, you know, I couldn't help but fail. I couldn't help but have strife. And I just want you to know that's there in Jacob. Even though he comes from the family of promise, even though his, it's, it's, he's going to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, eventually he's going to have his name changed to be Israel. This was a person who didn't start life on third base. In, in the scheme of things, what we would call it now, he had some serious daddy issues in his life. He had some serious holes in his heart that actually, if you read his story, he is living out his entire life trying to come to grips with some of the things that happened to him. And unfortunately, he actually has some behavioral issues that make things worse. Things boil over one day in his family when Esau has been out hunting and he is desperately hungry. Now, it tells us in the text that Esau is kind of like a manly hunter guy, which is interesting in the scope of Genesis because if you'll remember when we did the Tower of Babel about five weeks ago, Nimrod is the mighty hunter archetype, and he is a rebel against God. And you end up seeing that that's, that's actually what Esau is. We don't have time to get to that today, but when it says he is a mighty hunter, he is a free-spirited, rebellious man against God, whereas Jacob, it said, liked to live in tents, which is kind of a euphemism. Jacob is an indoor cat. He is much more comfortable cooking and cleaning and doing these things. And so in the ancient world, it would have set you up like, okay, Esau is the paragon of honor and manliness, and Jacob really isn't. And God's going to reverse those roles later in the story. But it doesn't stop there. So, he, so Esau comes one day. He has been out hunting. He is desperately hungry. In fact, he tells Jacob he is on the verge of death, and he just needs a meal, just one bowl of stew that Jacob could make. And Jacob, being the cheater and trickster that he is, realizes that he's got an opportunity here, and he ends up extorting his brother for his birthright. And he uses the same mechanism later to extort his dad to give him the blessing. So if you want to talk about ways to alienate people, Jacob has this desire in his heart for blessing. And this desire is actually not a bad desire. Blessing in the ancient world was more than just kind of a platitude, bless your heart, you know, I give you my blessing. It meant material prosperity. It meant wholeness. It meant status. It meant finally arriving into an identity that you could be proud of. Jacob has a desire to be blessed, but the way that he goes about this desire is through underhanded ways, tricking people, deceiving people, extorting people, using people to get what he feels he needs inside. And in the Jacob and Esau story, actually, we leave things in chapter 27 after he's tricked his brother twice now and he's tricked his father. We see that the text ends their relationship temporarily when he says his brother is so angry that he thinks to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Dad's getting old, and when he dies, I vow to kill my brother Jacob. It's where we leave the Jacob and Esau story. Not, 
on the greatest terms between the two of them. Jacob's life doesn't actually get that much better from here. He doesn't really learn his lesson. He goes and he ends up getting tricked by his uncle into marrying a woman he doesn't love, and then he does marry the woman he loves, and then he has marital strife in his home, and he has a rivalry between them. They're having kids that they're playing favorites with. He tricks his uncle out of his flock, and at some point, you have to step back and say, he is playing out almost comically the patterns that you can see in almost any life. They just all happen to be there for Jacob. And It's at this moment in his life that we, reading this story that God has inspired for us, we realize that there's actually something deeper going on with Jacob than just relationships. See, if if you were to outline this text all the way from chapter 25 through chapter 33, you would realize that the story starts with relationships. It starts with the fact that Jacob has this string of broken relationships, but then the text shows us that you have to jump down a deeper level to realize what's going on with Jacob. And this is true across the board. His relational problems arise out of his problems with his relationship with God. So, So much so, in fact, that it's his superficial relationship with God that leads to his broken relationships with other people. And and if there's a theme in this story, it would be this. It's it's impossible to truly get right with other people until you get right with God. And when you get right with God, it's impossible not to take steps to get right with other people. So you have to go from relational strife to the superficial relationship that Jacob has with God to the real encounter he has with God to a restored relationship. That's the pattern for Jacob. And I I would argue it's the pattern for all of us. So when we say that Jacob had a superficial relationship with God, what do we mean by that? Let me give you two observations as we move into chapters 32 and 33. First of all, Jacob's relationship with God was superficial in that it wasn't personal. There was no personal dynamic with God. Now, Jacob is from a family who has a great track record of belief in God. Abraham is called by God in Genesis chapter 12. He obeys without even knowing where he's going. He is the paragon of faith in his family. His son, Isaac, is also a faithful man of God. He trusts God to go and find a wife in a land that was not his own. And he trusts God to open the womb, and and they have kids that they decide to raise knowing God. But for some reason, with Jacob and Esau, it doesn't translate. There's no personal dimension. In fact, I was wondering about this because we have probably experienced this. How do you have a great Christian home and then... Over the generations, something gets disconnected in the faith. To the point that I looked back at the genealogies, and Abraham lived to be 175 years old. He had Isaac when he was 100, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau when Isaac was 60. So Abraham is actually alive for 15 years while Jacob and Esau are alive. He sees the formative moment. And so can you imagine the stories that they were telling around the dinner table in this family? That Abraham could sit down with his kids and grandkids and talk about what God had done, but but there was like a barrier for Jacob. Those things are true for his family, but they are really not true for him. It's like at this point he's kind of a grandchild of God, but God doesn't have any grandchildren. He hasn't taken the step to come face-to-face with God. The second thing about his relationship with God is it was conditional. It was conditional. If you look at chapter 28, 
the first encounter that we see Jacob have in his adult life with God is he's on the run, and he's, he's traveling, and he lays down, and he has a dream at night that there's this giant ladder going up to the sky. In fact, a better translation is a pyramid or a step, because it, it's exactly like what happens in the Tower of Babel. It's, it's a ziggurat going up to heaven, and angels are going up and coming down on this step staircase to heaven. And when he comes to it, it says, Behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you are lying right now, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring are going to be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The same promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather, he says, that promise is for you. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you where you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until everything that I have promised you is done. Can you imagine if God said that to you? He has said that to you in the Bible. But imagine if he said that to you in person, what you would do. Let me tell you what Isaac does, or what Jacob does. He says, how awesome is this place? This this must be the house of God. This must be the place that God dwells. And this is the gate of heaven. That's what they thought they were doing at Babel. He's seen the real gate. And so early in the morning, he takes the stone that he had been sleeping on, he sets it up as a pillar, and he pours oil on top of it, and he called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then he makes a vow, and listen to this vow. If God will be with me and do all the things that he said, then he will be my God. Isn't that interesting? You have this amazing encounter with God, and you build this little house, and you put a condition, you say, well, if God will do all that for me, then I'll follow him. And he leaves that place, it said, with the stone set up as the house of God. This is interesting. This is, this is such an insight into the kind of relationship Jacob has with God. It is totally conditional. If God will get me what I want, then I will serve God. In fact, this is probably the easiest way to tell that a relationship with God is superficial, is you have another end that you're pursuing, and God is just conveniently a means to that end for a certain period of your life. And, and the reason that's superficial is because the most important thing to you is whatever you're going to get from God, and whenever you find an easier way to get it, you don't need God anymore. God is just a convenient avenue, and as he gets less and less convenient, you get less and less God in your life. That's the nature of the relationship that Jacob has. This must be the house of God, and if God will give me the things I really want, I'll serve him, but for the time being, I'm going to keep moving and just leave this house of God here. He has a conditional relationship with God. He goes and he's serving with his uncle Laban, and they steal some household gods, which lets you know that these are not good Christian people here. This is not a period of Jacob's life where he's a moral exemplar. He's somebody that's actually pretty far from God right now. And it's in that moment that God calls him. God calls out to him. He says, are you ready to come home? You ready to come home to the land that I promised you? Isn't this interesting? We, we kind of like conceive of Bible stories like it would be the time when people are doing the right thing that God's like, hey, I've checked this out and you're really doing a great job. Would you like to serve me? 
No, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Paul or whoever it is, it's when they're at their lowest, most superficial, furthest from God, that God speaks and says, are you ready to come home? Are you ready to come home? And he says, I want you to go back to the land where you grew up. And the only problem is, in order to go back to the land where he grew up, he has to pass through Esau's land. Now, if you remember, things were not left in a great place with Esau. This is actually a huge challenge. If he wants to go back home, he's got to pass through all that signifies the brokenness of his past. He's got to go back. He's got to approach his brother, who last time we knew was saying, the moment our father dies, I'm going to kill you. And I think that there's something powerful here because it's on this journey that Jacob has the life-changing encounter with God. When his back is against the wall, when he's out of options, when his coping strategies have run out, when all the ways that he's tried to manage everything around him start to leak, that's when he encounters God. God's call is, come home, come back through the land of Esau and serve me. Our story this morning opens on that journey where, where Jacob is now camping alone. He's getting ready to cross the river, and in the morning, he's going to confront his brother. And all he knows at this point is he sent these spies ahead of time, and the spies are saying, it's not looking great. Esau is coming with 400 armed men. So Jacob takes his family, and he splits them up. He takes his possessions, and he splits them up so that if things go badly, maybe one of them can get away. And he crosses the river, and he camps at night by himself. And it's when he's alone, anticipating this meeting, crying out to God in prayer, that he encounters God. One of the reasons we know that he went from impersonal to personal is because when he prays in chapter 32, he begins to pray in the first person singular. Usually it's like, the God of Abraham and Isaac and my family, but now he's desperate. Now he's saying things like in verse 9 of chapter 32, he says, God called me, you said, return to your country, and I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown me. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers of my children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. See, the difference in this prayer is now Jacob is coming to God personally. He's saying, I need you. I need you to fulfill your promises. I am not worthy to even be able to talk to you right now. You promised, and so I am here. And, and I'm crying out to you. I am fearful. I am in need. I am desperate. This is a picture of a person who now has had a personal encounter with God. He's seen his own need. He's being honest with God. He's crying out. He's out of solutions. He has nothing to offer God except himself. The second thing is, this is, this is dangerous. This encounter with God is dangerous because right when he gets done praying and, and it gets dark, it says he was attacked by someone in the night. This is like one of those VBS stories that you get used to, and then as an adult, you come back to it and you're like, this is insane. 
<laughs> this is crazy. He's sleeping at night, and the angel of the Lord, God, wrestles him to the ground? What, what is this? I love, there's a, a Tim Keller sermon on this passage where he says, do you ever feel like you've been jumped by God? <laughs> That's what happens here. And like experientially, if we could kind of let our guard down for a minute, you've probably felt that before. I know this is God, but it doesn't really feel that great. It feels more like I've been attacked. And he says, if you feel like you've been jumped by God, stay the course. There's probably a blessing in there. And as we come to this story, we have to wonder, there's no way somebody would have made up this story. This has to be a genuine story because it is too crazy to be true. that, that it couldn't be true. God wrestles him to the ground, and all night they are wrestling, and it says he sees that he cannot overpower him, so he decides to touch his hip. And the angel touches Jacob's hip and brings it out of socket, and so now Jacob is crippled wrestling with the Lord. There's a really amazing short meditation on this story that Frederick Buechner wrote called the magnificent defeat. The magnificent defeat. At this point in the story, he writes, Jacob will not release his grip on the angel, only now it is no longer a grip of violence, but a grip of need. See, what what happens in Jacob is he goes from trying to grip the Lord and everybody around him to get what he wants to holding on for dear life because he needs God. In fact, what happens is he asks the the angel what what his name is. He's got to have some sense here that this is no mere mortal. And the angel won't tell him, and the angel asks him his name, which we'll come back to, and he gives him a new name. But in the midst of this, you get this really weird thing where it says, uh, the angel says to him, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, the Jewish commentators, I always love to look at what the rabbis were saying about this. The Jewish commentators have some really interesting reasons why they think this happened, and I'll just give you one. They proposed that the angel needed to leave because it was daybreak, and he wanted to make sure that he was there to sing in the heavenly choir that morning. He didn't want to miss that again. So he's trying to get back to participate in what's going on in heaven. I think maybe a better way of reading this text is he, he knows that it's time for Jacob to go and meet with Esau, but, but even more than that, we get the sense that this is God who is wrestling with him. And, and we know in the Old Testament, no one can see God and live. It's to the point that Jacob is grasping and holding on to the point that the angel's saying, this is about to get very dangerous for you. This wrestling encounter has gotten so deep and so intimate that he is striving to see the very face of God. That's why this encounter really changes him. Because it's no longer knowing about God. It's it's no longer just having an experience that he's construing. Now he has seen God's face. Look at the end of this passage in verse 30. He calls the place Peniel or Peniel and he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. In fact, the only way to go from a superficial relationship to a real relationship with God is to see his face, is to grapple with him until you see his face. Frederick Buechner says, this 
blessing that he gets. When he says, I won't let go until you bless me, he, he is blessed. But this is not a blessing that he can have by cunning or force of will. This is now a blessing he can only receive as a gift. He, he now is operating on God's terms, not his terms. This is the blessing that only God can give, only through an encounter with him, only by seeing his face. There's no shortcuts. There's no fleeting emotional experience that can do this for you. There's no way that you can kind of life hack and just change a few habits and all of a sudden you have an encounter with God. This is only the kind of encounter that comes through the struggle that we see in Jacob. And we are so in love with short-term, easy life hack kind of spiritual advice that so many of us miss this kind of encounter. It's impossible to do this in the short term. You have to do this by engaging with God, wrestling through the difficult times, not letting go until you're blessed that you can receive this. So Laura sent me to Walmart the other day with a very short list not quite like what I saw on Instagram the other day where the guy goes with a poster board where everything is taped on there, like the packages that you're supposed to get, but pretty close to that. And so I'm wandering around Walmart, and one of the items on the list is Kraft mac and cheese. Not for the kids, for me. So I find it, and I'm looking for those little cups, you know, that you have where you just peel the top and you put the water in, you microwave it. And I look and I find it, it's a four-pack for $4.92. And I thought, that, like, that seems a little steep for cups of macaroni and cheese, especially when right next to it on the shelf is a mega five-pack boxes, $4.88. Now, how is this possible? That I, you know, so I, I take them both off. I'm standing there looking. People have to have wondered, like, you're not a health guy, you know, if you're looking at these. It's like cheese noodles, that's it, you know. But... But I'm trying to find the ounces. I'm trying to find how much there is in these two because I'm like, this is a giant mega pack of boxes and you have these tiny little cups of mac and cheese. And so I end up figuring it out basically that you're paying either 60 cents per ounce or 13 and a half cents per ounce. This is crazy. Four times the food for less, four cents less. And then it occurred to me, they know that people like me are gonna come and they're going to take the little bitty cups for four times the price because they are ready in two minutes with no cooking. That's it. There is no difference in the finished product except the other one, one, one takes twice, three times as long. You have to have a pot. You have to have milk, butter, spoon, expertise in the kitchen to be able to do this. Versus all you got to do is hit that little line and they perforate it for you. Do not fill past this line. That's all you got to do. Throw it in the microwave and bam, you've got it. But you're going to pay four times more for it because they know how obsessed we are with convenience. They know that most people, they can get them if they save them time and energy and effort. They're not ever going to count the difference between these two. And I worry that part of our spiritual condition is exactly like that. People know in a social media world that if they promise your spiritual life will be improved in two minutes without any hard work, no cooking, no other supplies, just consumables, that we'll buy it. That we'll buy it. And we'll pay a higher price, we won't get as great a product, and you won't have the real encounter that a long life of faithfulness that requires effort 
and it requires other inputs, and it requires that you wrestle with God, and it requires that you go through difficult things. That's the way God forges somebody who has a real faith in him. The last part of this is the angel asks Jacob, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And the angel says, your name is no longer going to be Jacob. This story actually is like Jacob died. And the angel says, your name now is going to be Israel, for you have striven with God and men, and you have prevailed. See, this is where Frederick Beekner's book is such a brilliant title, The Magnificent Defeat. That's every Christian, the magnificent defeat. He, he likens it to Jesus who's coming out of the tomb on broken ankles. The magnificent defeat. Who, who still has the nail holes and in his side you can reach in and see that he was dead, but, but now he's alive. The magnificent defeat. A defeat where we die to ourselves and to the world and to our desires so that we can be magnificently reunited with God forever. And this new name and this new identity that he gets in God is yours in Jesus Christ. If, if, if you will move from a superficial relationship with him to a relationship where you truly have been born again and everything else is in the past and now you have new life, a new name, a new identity, a new blessing from God, then you'll see the fruit show up in your relationships. I'll give you these four things quickly. After this story, we see that Jacob now has the spiritual resources to go and make things right with his brother. He doesn't need to extort his brother anymore because he's got everything he ever needed from God when he blessed him. He can actually give things to his brother. So he takes what he stole from Esau and he gives it back. It's like the story of Zacchaeus where he's lived his whole life extorting people and then all of a sudden realizes it was never about the money. It was never about the stuff. It was a hole that once that peace snapped into place, when Jesus comes to his home, he says, I'm going to pay back everybody for everything. He doesn't need to flee anymore. He, he can actually allow God to work in his relationship with Esau. Next week, we're going to talk about the power of forgiveness in the Joseph story. But what's interesting here is it would be easy for Jacob to always have a half-hearted, suspicious relationship with Esau. But instead, he allows God to actually work in Esau's life just like he's worked in his. And Esau forgives him, and he comes, and he wraps him up in his arms, and he hugs him. And there's so many parallels in this story in the language to the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son who comes home. He doesn't need to hide. He doesn't need to look anywhere else for what he needs. He's seen the face of God, and he's been blessed. So, to conclude, as Jamie and Janet come back up, I, I want to go back just for one more minute to Taylor Swift. So in this, in this song, Antihero, where she talks about being the problem, there's this really fascinating line at the end of the chorus where she says, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in a mirror. This is like, this is so our philosophy as a generation of people in a nutshell. She, I'll stare at the sun but I'll never look in a mirror. But, but the problem is, even if you did look in a mirror, that really wouldn't be the solution. Because the solution is not inside you. The further you look into yourself, the more you're going to get of what you've always gotten. In fact, she missed this by one letter. 
Stare into the sun, and you will have life. Look to the sun. Look to the one who gave himself for you. Look to the one who has taken your sins in his body and died and risen again so that you can have everything your heart has always desired in him. You may not get all the other stuff you thought you needed, but you get God. And as Jacob shows us, that's, that's good enough. So look to him. See his face. See his delight in you. See his blessing in your heart. And you'll see the fruit show up in your relationships. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in Jacob's life where you just totally transformed him. And, and Father, it's not something that we could come up with. It's not something that we can even induce or plan or program. It is just an encounter with you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would remind us, those, those of us who have had that same encounter, that the focus is always and only you. Father, I pray for those who, they, they don't know what that's like. They, they still have what feels very superficial, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would bring them face-to-face -face with you, that you would change their heart, give them a new name, a new identity, wipe away the past so that they could live for you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate communion.